Uh, Father, God, I ask you that, uh, God, according to your mercy and your loving kindness, God, that you would be patient with us, Lord, and you would fill us with understanding today. God, that you would give us grace and the fear of you would fill our hearts during this session, God. God, the information that doesn't lead to the fear of you is uh, probably just making a callous man and woman out of us. God, we ask you, send the Holy Spirit. Send the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God. All right, amen. All right, we're going to uh, going to be talking about the um, the fire of economic pressures, which I'm sure you know half the room would argue they're probably experts on the subject. So uh, I I uh, uh, I think. Uh, I want to be consistent with what I what I think everybody here is probably going to attempt to do, which is remove kind of the arbitrary context of the end of the age and and the things that are going to happen, and place them in context to the gospel and place them in context to the narrative of the Bible. I think uh, Henry did such a an excellent job. There's so much wisdom in the way he uh, in the way he laid it out giving us clarity about the beginning and uh, and about the end really does lead to having wisdom about the middle of the timeline. So I'm going to start top of uh, page one, or uh, sorry, you guys have a booklet, whatever yours looks like. I have my notes separate. So the eschatological fire of testing. So I just want to highlight that the, the scripture is clear at the end of the age. We know there's events and things that happen, but the scripture doesn't present them as look out, bad things are coming. The scripture presents them as a test at the end of the age. It's an examination. And uh, like you have in Revelation 3, speaking to the church of Philadelphia, it says, since you've kept the command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Or First Peter, in all this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, you know, the little while is uh, it's all throughout the prophets. It's like uh, Isaiah 26. Close your door and hide for a little while until the indignation is past. It's a reference to the uh, time of Jacob's trouble. So, even though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, though these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, though that perishes when it's refi- even when it's refined by fire, the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And then Luke 8, in the parable of the sower, same, same framework. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. This is the framework for 
all of the parables, but it's the framework specifically for the parable of the sower, is what, what is proven and disclosed in the time of testing. So, uh, you know, it's further revealed. It's like a day when things are revealed, like in Malachi 4. For indeed, the day is coming. The day is coming. It's burning like a furnace or like an oven when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them. Uh, Romans 2.16, on the day when God will judge the secrets of the human heart, according to my gospel, through Christ Jesus. If anyone builds on this foundation, 1 Corinthians 3, talking about teachers and the multitude of teachers that they were receiving in Corinth, and they were leading to these schisms of I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Jesus. And he says, if any of them or any of us, speaking of himself also, builds on this foundation of the teaching of Christ, using gold, silver, or costly stones, wood, hay, or stubble, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. You know, and, and so this is, it ought to be a little bit disconcerting because we assume issues concerning the security and the guarantee of where we are are all seen in the present. And that's not the case. So it's a little disconcerting. The fire will test the quality of each teacher's work in context. He's talking about teachers, like Henry was just talking about. The fire will test the quality of what you've received as teaching. Um, so, again, highlighting that this is the dynamic that happens at the end of the age, that it's not bad things are happening, it's there's a test. You're going to be evaluated. And so with that framework, we're going to go back because just like Henry did and we didn't compare notes, we just, right before we did the notes, we spent like two months together almost every day. So I think that's why it happened like this. Um, or maybe it's the Holy Spirit. That could be an option too. <laughs> um, so the context of the beginning and the curse, and um, so... Uh, always, always starting with, if you don't have a consistent framework that reinforces the original perfection of the beginning, then, then there's a lot that's not, that's not caught in the, in the middle of the timeline. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them, and then God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful an increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over every living creature, moves on the ground. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So the context of very good and, a, and the blessing he gave them is if you read the narrative, specifically of Genesis, but really of the whole Bible, it's speaking of an idyllic situation for them to be able to be faithful to him. Like it was, uh, uh, like, you know, now, we, like Henry described, we fall short, and, and it's always, you know, the thing that rises up. Well, it's just things weren't ideal. You know, I didn't have coffee, and it was, uh, I, and, and then we have this. Like, this is our father. I mean, he had it. You know what I mean? <clears throat> and, uh, and then uh, Genesis 2 
you know, just to reinforce the, the goodness of the beginning, the ideal circumstances that existed. And uh, the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Obviously, had that not happened, you would remain as you are with an imperishable body, right? <clears throat> and then the beginning also is what highlights the, the, the issue of the present age, which is the, the age where humanity is under discipline. Right? We're under the divine time out, the 6,000-year time out. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and you ate the fruit of the tree that I said you shouldn't eat it, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat fruit from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So it's the introduction of death and the introduction of scarcity and provision. Right? This is he removes the ideal circumstances. But again, it's not arbitrary that he removes these arbitrary circumstances to, to the sons of Adam. Um <clears throat> And then Moses in uh, Psalm 90, if you, if you guys aren't really familiar with Psalm 90 in context to the curse and the resurrection, I, I just get so edified just in all different seasons, just, spent, you know, just sitting in Psalm 90 and looking how clear it was to Moses, like what's going on and how do we get out of it? He just has so much clarity, you know? He says in... Uh, Starting in verse 3, Moses says, You turn people back to the dust. Oh, NIV, that's right. NIV doesn't like to use. Anyways, they try to be gender neutral. You, you turn people back to the dust, saying, Return to the dust, you mortals. He says, All of our days pass away under your wrath. So our days are passing away because you're angry with something that we've done. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are trouble and sorrow, and they quickly pass away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is, in, that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You know what I mean? Like, teach, he just said, Humans are dying at 70 and 80 years old. A heart of wisdom comes from acknowledging why that's happening. Give us a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. And this is just a consistent cry that you have from Genesis 3 onward, pleading for a restoration of the circumstances that were in the garden. Uh, how long, O oh Lord? Relent. And in Genesis 5, you have a little earlier witness, which is where it, it's, you know, it's kind of hidden in the genealogies, and Lamech names his son Noah. And, um, and, 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 you know, anyways, if you do the genealogies, like he's not far removed from Adam and Seth at all. 
But uh, Lamech had lived 182 years, and he had a son. He named his name Noah, which literally just means rest. And he said, he, saying, he will comfort us in the labor and the painful toil of our hands caused by the ground that the Lord has cursed. And the, the framework was because he had promised a seed that would come from the woman. That would be the solution to the problem. And so this, the expectation of the seed just carries on. And so you have all throughout the Jewish generations, right? They're naming their children in accordance with the expectation of the seed because in the framework was the curse. And, um, and so maybe this one is the one who will remove this horrible curse that we're toiling with our hands and there's not enough provision. And uh, in Romans 8, Paul just picks it up in kind of shorthand, but all the audience knows what he's talking about. For creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, in reference to the curse on the ground, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the, into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. So the, the freedom and the glory of the children of God, I, 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 I keep hearing the manifest sons of God thing come up and all these people that I wouldn't expect to hear it from in charismatic circles. And So I just want to clarify, it says three verses later. You know, that the, the sons of God, the glory of the sons of God are when we receive our adoption as sons, which is the redemption of our bodies. And so all it's doing is it's saying it's the same framework that Adam, the sons of Adam are what, because what was the hope of the earth outside of Eden at the beginning? It was that Adam, as an imperishable man in ideal circumstances, would walk out and cultivate it, Right? So it's just the same framework as catalogically that the sons of God, having entered into the glory of God, would then restore the earth, cultivate it again. So I just had to add that in there. I, I keep hearing it from all these sources I don't expect to. So, um, <clears throat> so then you have uh, point D, the curse and reliant faith upon God. So, the, so all that was kind of to just highlight this this season of discipline is not, a, it's not an arbitrary, like, just like the end of the ages, an arbitrary bad times are coming. Just prepare for bad times. You know, I have a, I have a uh, my grandfather is a Mormon. And, um, and we, we, went to go, we went to go see him one year. And, uh, uh, and, and he says, yeah, you know, I'm glad you guys came now because just a month ago, we got the electricity and running water turned back on. We had a, an ice storm came by, and we didn't have electricity or running water for 40 days. He lives out in the country. So. I said, 40 days without running water and electricity? What did you, how did you do that? And he goes, oh, we, we already knew. A prophet, one of our prophets came to our local, whatever the church is, and the temple, and he told everybody, an ice storm's coming, store up water and food. And so they all did. I thought, well, that's kind of simple. But that's not the scenario of the end of the age. That's not exactly what the scriptures are presenting. And so if, you know, if the Lord tells you to store up things, I'm not, that's, that's not my point. I'm just saying that that's not the storyline of what's about to take place. And, um, and, and I also find that, that this kind of attitude and response being the, the initial response really is typically 
void of the fear of God, and it kind of works against that. And, and so I, I like to lay this framework, and then Lord can speak to you as he will. But, um, so the curse and reliant faith upon God. And so the framework of the curse, again, it's not arbitrary that Adam sins the way that he does, like Henry went into, and the curse that comes on the earth in context to the test that comes at the end, those aren't arbitrary, right? Because what the curse does is it highlights and it pushes the issue of faithfulness and faithlessness to God to the surface. That's what it does to the sons of men, is it confronts us with faithlessness in context to being in covenant with God. So like um, uh, Deuteronomy 8, so they're at the they're at the Jordan. They're about to pass over, and he says uh, Moses highlights to them. You know, let's recap what just happened over the last forty years, and um, and he says this in in Deuteronomy eight, and it's it really really pretty amazing that Jesus quotes this and when he's fasting and the temptation and everything. But that's another story. Remember how the Lord your God led you, remember how he led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years, to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. Okay, so the way I did it, I want you to understand the way I did it was to know, to humble you and test you, and to know, have it be known what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. So something about the way he led is basically a test to bring to the surface, are you prone to obey me or are you prone to not obey me? And he says, verse three, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you, right? So two things are being taught. Man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So the two things, one is that hunger, it, it shows you, are you prone in your heart to obey God or are you prone in your heart to disobey God, right? It's the, it, this is what the curse does to us. The curse on the ground and the threat of scarcity and hunger, it yields this like, oh, that is what's in there, right? And, um, and you know, the other part is like Jesus says in, John 6, uh, you know, just referencing the same thing. So Jesus is basically, or the Lord's basically saying, I gave you a, a living parable so that you'd understand the scarcity, you'd understand what's in your heart, prone to rebellion. And then I gave you something that had to come from heaven. And then Jesus, you know, Jesus came and he said, you know, the bread of God that comes from heaven uh, is the one that gives life to the world. You know, that's the one that gives life when it comes. And then he says, I'm the bread that gives life. I'm the bread of life. And he's basically saying, this is what the analogy is about. He subjects you to circumstances that show you what's in the heart. And then he promises you someone's going to come from heaven. And without becoming weak, uh, Romans 4. So this is, again, the same framework of what it does, our, uh, the, the condition of the curse what it does to the heart is it's worked out. And he just uses, Paul's using the example of uh, Abraham. 
He says, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, right? Now as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's room, womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith. So in the, in the face of the circumstances, what was in Abraham came to the surface. And with respect to the promise of God, and the promise of God isn't that he would have a son. The promise of God is, go back to you know, chapter 12 of Genesis, the promises of God was that his son was going to restore blessing to all the nations again and was going to cause him and his seed to live forever in a land that he promised them. So it was the resurrection. So in regards to the promise of God, he didn't waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform it. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. And the issue of this being righteousness is just because this is why justification by faith is the deal. This is why this is the subject matter. Like this is the, you know, that's the, our kids homeschool. And when I help my wife grade their, you know, their math, I have the, the key over here. And this is why the key of the evaluation is justification by faith. At the end of the age, because this is what Adam didn't do, right? Because this is the one thing that he had all the ideal circumstances, and that Adam assumed when the serpent came that he could actually do what he was supposed to do by just skipping the middleman of God showing him right, good from evil. Because that's not obviously that's what God was doing already. Son, come here. That tree, good. That tree bad, right? And who knows however many more conversations were happening, but this is the framework of their relationship. And so it's not like the devil saying good and evil is bad to know. It's like this is what God was doing to him. But the devil just tempted him with what he knew was there, which was an inclination because we're naive. Oh, I'm pretty trustworthy. I I could... I could do this if I just had the right information. You know what I mean? And so God says, this is where, the, this is where Adam gets an F. It's because he trusted in himself. So this is, we walk out this age and it does, it highlights our self-reliance. That, oh, I'm pretty good in our, you know, I, you know, you know, basically my only problems are my circumstances aren't ideal and just don't have enough self-esteem. That was really sarcastic, by the way. Um, so, um, idolatry and greed. So, I want to uh, kind of paint now, go to the eschatological, how, how did they title this? The fire of economic pressure that's coming. In context to idolatry and greed. Because this is kind of how it plays out. Just like Henry said, deception, it like comes to fullness at the end of the age. And so everything comes to fullness at the end of the age. These things all kind of come to a head. And God has, you know, the answer key. And we all stand and give an account. And God says, uh, did you persevere in your faith, young man? And I don't care about this and that. Did you persevere in your faith? 
and uh, by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the framework that is laid out specifically, I think, a lot in the throughout the narrative of Israel in the Old Testament, but then it continues in the New Testament and obviously into the present day, is that he makes covenant with one people. And the covenant is basically this. There's stipulations and there's this and there's that, but it's, I am your uh, God, but in Hebrew the word is just Elohim, and it actually, there's no uppercase God in the scripture. It's kind of a... It just has a lot of translation history, and so everybody translates it that way. You know, God's name is Yahweh. You know, his name isn't God. And, and so he just, he just says, like in Exodus 20, he says, you shall have no other Elohim but me. I'm your Elohim. And uh, Deuteronomy 29, in context to just reinforcing the covenant and what will happen if they fall into idolatry and, and break the covenant. Make sure there's no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord or Yahweh, our Elohim, to go and worship the Elohim of the other nations. Because this, this is supposed to be the big distinguishing mark between the covenant, those who are of the covenant with Yahweh and those who are not, is because they worship idols. They worship other Elohim. And he says, make sure that you don't fall into worshiping the Elohim of the nations. Because I haven't made a covenant with all those nations yet. Uh, and then Psalm 96, for all the gods of the nations, they're idols. But Yahweh made the heavens. It's obviously a reinforcement to not be faithless in context to the covenant. So, and then you have it, it, it the way it plays out. I think Paul, Paul references the connection of idolatry and greed. Real, real, it's almost, you know, he just references it so quickly. And so sometimes, probably a lot in context to uh, naturalism and, and, and the idea that they were so primitive and naive, those morons worshiping rocks and poles, that we don't, and so we remove ourselves from guilt kind of doing that, you know, but... But listen to the context here. So put, put to death whatever, Colossians 3, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. First uh, Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Uh, they themselves report what kind of reception we, that you gave us, and they tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Then again in Ephesians 5, for of this you can be sure no immoral, impure, or greedy person, for such a person is an idolater, a greedy person. It's not an exaggeration to say if you love something. It's not saying if you love something more than God, then it's idolatry. It's not what he's saying. It's much more concrete than that. Has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God? So uh, point C, the origins of idolatry and greed, the connection are found all throughout the Old Testament narrative, but I just want to highlight a couple passages. So like uh, Jeremiah 11, verse 13, you, Judah, have as many gods as you have towns, and the altars you set up to burn incense to the shameful god Baal are as many as the streets of Jerusalem. So 
Uh, you know, Baal is, is, you know, somewhat of an arbitrary name for, you know, for a, a God in the scriptures, but it was also well known uh, that it was, it was the chief of the Canaanite pantheon was Baal. So here I have uh, from the Lexham Bible Dictionary, it says uh, that Baal was the Canaanite storm god and he was the bringer of rain. The chief of the Canaanite pantheon as the storm god and the bringer of rain, Baal was recognized as sustaining fertile crops, animals, and people. So right, when you think of Israel and idolatry, that's why you make the Baal connection because it was over and over again that they fail into worshiping, you know, the God of the Canaanites, whose land they inherited from God. That the, the context that I think is really helpful is just prior to entering into the Canaanite territory, Moses tells them in Deuteronomy 28 in context to the covenant curses, he said, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and you do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I give you today, all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. The sky over your head will be bronze in verse 23. The ground beneath you will be iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you're destroyed. Your sons and your daughters will be given to another nation. You'll wear out your eyes watching for them day after day, powerless to lift a hand. So in the context of a agricultural nation, you take away the rain and you take away their children, and that just equals national poverty, right? And so as they start to play out, in gener- and specifically, we had the reference from Jeremiah, in Jeremiah's day, it's not arbitrary that they turn to Baal to worship. So God begins to put the discipline of the covenant on them, and they turn to Baal, who the Canaanites said, when we worship him, he gives us rain and blesses our children. And so God starts to put on the discipline and it reveals idolatry. They don't trust in their Elohim. They go to the Elohim of the nations. You see how the curse functions? And it just presses until you go, I gotta, you're faced with the decision. Faithlessness or faith in context to the covenant. And so, then you just have the end of the age, and it just, it plays out this framework all the way. And uh, so then you have in point four, the mark of the beast and the culmination of idolatry. So, this, this is the final test of allegiance to Yahweh and to his Messiah. It's, uh, this is why it's described as, you know, like we read at the beginning, it's, it's the great test that's going to come on all who are upon the earth. Uh, Revelation 13, 14 through 17 says, because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first piece, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. And me and Henry were just, we're just tracking on these passages. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast. So, first of all, the context of the image being set up is identical to the images that were set up. 
Because it's in context to because of the signs. Because of the awesome things that he did for people. He was able to set up a statue or whatever this thing's going to look like and command worship from it. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich, poor, free, slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So all who refused the worship, basically like uh, Lonida just, just basically highlights that it's a better translation would be it's a mark showing one's relationship to the beast or a mark of loyalty to the beast. It's a mark of allegiance. And so the issue becomes that the promise of security now is all that is touted in front of people. And, and, and then it's reinforced not just by the signs of this man of sin but, and of the false prophet, but of the fact that he now has power to remove all financial security from all of the inhabitants on the earth overnight. I mean, obviously it doesn't have universal implications overnight, but there's a threat overnight. You know what I mean? And so, therefore, it just thrusts the issue of the curse and the issue of faithlessness and faith towards God to the very surface of every human heart on the planet. Of course, it happens gradually and it waves, and I'm not trying to overstate how universal it all happens. But then you have, uh, you know, Revelations 13 begins talking about the beast when it first introduces him. And the whole world was filled with wonder, and they followed the beast, and people worshipped the dragon who had given authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, and they said, who's like the beast? Who can wage war against it? I mean, this is not, this is not that far-fetched. You know what I mean? Just like it's not far-fetched that Israel would turn to the Canaanite god Baal because of financial security, or at least the promise of financial security. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they shall be killed. It's uh, quoting Jeremiah 15. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. This is what the scenario is doing. It's calling for endurance in faith because it's the final test of allegiance. It's a final test of what Adam did. Do you still trust in yourselves? And just comes to a culmination at the end of the age with a man of sin and a pledge of lawlessness offered to the inhabitants of the earth or a pledge of uh, allegiance 
Uh, last point here is uh, prepared to endure through the present trials. So that, this, is a, this is a call for a patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. It, it, we should read it and we should feel like a, uh, God pleading with the sons of men about this hour of test. Not, not just bad things are happening, but it's a test. He said it should plead with the sons of men for perseverance and faith to be esteemed above everything else. And then uh, in context to that, um, you know, some of the writings in the New Testament, it's, it's clear that they're actually speaking in these terms and they're, and they're understanding that even prior to that, the great time of test, that the Lord is even using things right now, economic pressure now, to begin to develop faith and perseverance inside of us in context to how we will learn to respond to God in allegiance and not turn after the idols of the security that the nations of the earth promise. Because we get addicted to security. You know what I mean? And this is why, like, every time you turn around, some CEO of a company went into a closed door speaking about ungodly things with government leaders and they come out with some new thing that's terribly unsafe for your children. You have to let us make these decisions for you. It's not safe unless you put your trust in us. This is why this happens every week. There's something new. Well, it happens for two reasons. One, it's escalating. Number two, it's because we keep listening to them. <laughs> but Paul, Paul says in the Second Corinthians, we were under pressure far beyond. He's talking, you know, I don't want you to be unaware of the things that we've gone through. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. These things happen so it might be tested in us so that as we move forward, we don't rely on ourselves, but like Abraham, we trust God who gives life to the dead. Consider it pure joy, James, the famous one. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you find trials of many kinds because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And the, you know, the, the point that I think sometimes gets skipped over is that if the goal of your present trials is perseverance, it just means harder things are coming. So this is the framework for trials, is that you ain't seen nothing yet. Therefore, it produces endurance for what's ahead. More trials. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you that has come on you to test you as though some strange thing were happening. So my, uh, you know, my, my desire for this and uh, it's my desire for my life and for my children and for my family, for my friends, is that, uh, that, we, would, that we would have the fear of God and we would have wisdom in context to this, because this is, 
This is the way the scripture defines wisdom. This wisdom is, is, uh, is to live with awareness and acknowledging consciously that day when we stand to give an account and like Paul said, all men will stand to give an account before the judgment seat, knowing then the fear of God we compel men. Fear of God is simply to acknowledge like that day's really ahead of us. That day of evaluation when he really does, like there's no games. There's not going to be any games played on that day. And there's not going to be like Adam tried. Well, it's because, it's because, and it's, imagine, you know, Adam had everything perfect and he still thought he could have excuses and we have, you know, less than perfect. And we still want to go, well, God, it's because on that day, I, you know, I, this didn't go right, and that didn't go right, and they weren't recognizing my personality traits. You know what I mean? And, but it's an evaluation, and it's, and it's true, and it's faithful what he's going to say. Like, it's, it's actual reality. And uh, my desire is that God would give us by the Holy Spirit, and you don't really, I mean, you can get it by the Holy Spirit through studying the Scriptures, but how, the, the, the older I get, I, I realize it's, it is like gold to receive from God a, a sustained sense of the fear of God. To have that govern your thoughts throughout the day is like you'd trade anything for it. You'd trade anything for it. And it and it's but it's precious and it and it eludes us quickly, especially in a culture like ours. So I'm gonna pray and uh and uh yeah, I'm going to pray real quick, and then we'll, then we'll end. So, Father, God, God, I, I, Lord, I want, like I was speaking of, Father, I want a heart that trembles at this. I want a heart that trembles at you. God, knowing the sins of our fathers and all of humanity since their day, God, to rely on ourselves. And to quickly turn to idolatry so we don't have to just trust you. We don't have to trust to wait on the one who you will reveal from heaven one day. Father, I know we all acknowledge right now that you're, you work, you're at work in 30 different ways in each of our lives. The way that the effects of scarcity of provision are affecting our relationships and our, the way we make decisions and the way we treat people. God, we ask you for mercy and that you would forgive us. God, for our allegiance to the systems of this age, to the gods of this world. God, we repent. God, we want to turn away trusting in you, putting our faith in you, You who raised the dead. And Father, I ask you that you would put the fear of you in our hearts, God. That you would govern us with the fear of you. That you would strengthen us with a spirit of revelation. God, a spirit of wisdom by the Holy Spirit would come upon us in the midst of the the unfolding of this age where, where the threat continues to to produce this longing for security and this longing for uh, 
to be delivered from the effects of the curse in some preliminary way. God, that you would keep our faith in the cross, not trusting in ourselves, putting all of our allegiance into the one that you've appointed and the atonement that he made on our behalf. So that like Paul said to the Colossians, having reconciled us to God and his mortal body, if indeed we persevere in the faith, unmoved from the hope that we heard in the gospel. Father, we ask you to grant us perseverance. Thank you, Holy Spirit. I ask you to move in my brothers and sisters for the rest of the day today, strengthening the fear of God in their midst, in their conversation, edifying us in the Holy Spirit. Amen.